Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Beat. Another victory on Sunday saw Leicester become the latest side to be steamrolled by Mikel Arteta's top four bandwagon. But could the wheels come off when they host title chasing Liverpool on Wednesday? I'm Mark Manbryans from PA Media and today I'm joined by The Telegraph, Sam Dean and Molly Hudson from The Times to look back on the Leicester success, preview the visit of Jurgen Klopp's men and put Molly to the test in the long-awaited return of the Arsenal Beat quiz. Comfortable 2 0 win over Leicester on Sunday, Sam. Um, Leicester had taken four points from their previous two trips to the Emirates, but we saw something of a something of a golfing class almost, didn't we, on Sunday? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it, it really feels like things are happening at Arsenal now. Um, there's a consistency to their performances as well as their results. It's obviously five wins in a row, and the last ten games have been exceptional results-wise. But uh, everyone seems to know what they're doing. Um, everyone seems to know the system and everyone seems to know their role within that system. And Arteta spoke a bit about that afterwards in the press conference yesterday. And he said, yeah, they, they know what they're doing and they're also now able to do it at speed. And I think that's the key. You look at some of the interchanges in midfield yesterday and the way that Party, Xhaka and, and Odegaard were popping the ball between them and Leicester couldn't get near it. And Leicester are not, not a bad team at all but there were spells yesterday when they it looked like a bad team and I think there is a caveat in that Leicester had played on Thursday night and are playing again on this Thursday coming and they had rested both Yuri Tielemans and Wilfred Ndidi who are evidently their their best two central midfield players so Arsenal's dominance in the heart of the pitch was pretty predictable in that sense but I still think the the nature of the performance and the control that Arsenal had was part of a pattern now that we've seen for quite a few weeks. And this is, to my mind, by some distance, the most encouraging period of Arteta's managerial tenure. Um, the, the the way they're playing, the speed of moving the ball, the, the shape, the way it's evolving, everything seems to be coming together, uh, which, given the various inconsistencies and dips that Arsenal have had over the last four or five years, should be pretty encouraging, I think, for all their fans. Well, as someone who maybe doesn't grace the Emirates as often as Sam and myself, um, could you sense a, a different atmosphere around the place yesterday than, than what you've been used to when you've been there previously? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's a it's a combination of kind of what's going on the pitch and also what's going on off it. I think there's a, a few times we've all been at Arsenal and maybe a goal hasn't gone in and there's kind of, there's a bit of nerves that kind of ripples around the Emirates and I think it does rub off on the players. But I think now, as Sam was talking about that, kind of as Arteta's grown as a manager and he's really stamped his his kind of philosophy on this team, it feels like there's there's a plan and there's a point to what they're doing. And I think sometimes we've asked them in the past, it's, you know, been get the ball to a certain player and, and they pull off something you, you think about some of the runs in the FA Cup or whatever and how reliant it was on Aubameyang. Whereas now I think there's so many more kind of avenues for Arsenal to create something that when they do miss a chance, it doesn't feel like it's the end of the world. You feel as though there's going to be another chance. And I think that helps the crowd a little bit to be less nervy. And I also think that there's just such a positive feeling around the club at the moment, obviously being being up and around the Champions League where you know Arsenal fans feel like they deserve to be the club deserves to be 
And I was speaking to um, Tobin Heath for a, for a piece um, last week and she's an Arsenal fan herself and she was saying that she'd only been to one Arsenal game so far this season, but she was desperate to go for some more because she was like, it feels as though there's a really positive atmosphere at the moment and I want to be part of that. And I think that's the same for, you know, all of the fans. They're desperate to be part of this kind of period where Arsenal were doing so well. You know what game that was, just out of curiosity. I was hoping it wasn't the nil-nil with Burnley or something like that. <laughs> no, but I have a feeling it wasn't a great one because she was sort of desperate to come back and actually experience Arsenal in a good place. So I wonder if it was one of the ones where maybe the fans were getting on the backs of the players a little bit. I think the win against Wolves was, I think, probably the best example this season of, of the change at the Emirates and the response. I think, I can't remember who, I think one of the players, or maybe it was Arteta, spoke afterwards about the crowd's response to the opening goal scored by Wolves in the first half. And there was a sort of a moment of disappointment and then pretty much immediately the sort of the crowd got to their feet and, and sort of cheered Arsenal on again. Whereas, you, Mark, you and I know, I think probably better than anyone we sat through all these grim experiences for the last three years or so. And normally when Arsenal conceded a goal at home at the Emirates, the whole place just <laughs> collapses basically in terms of mood. So that, that, that for me was a real sort of example of that shift, which Arteta, to be fair to him, has, has been calling, calling for and, and predicting, saying it's going to come and the fans are getting behind us. But you, you can really feel a difference there now. I wonder if that's arguably summed up in Alexander Lacazette. You know, this guy's not scored very many goals this season, but yesterday the fans were singing his name. They've not really gone on his back, whereas in the past, I think it'd be fair to say a player that they're reliant on as much as they are. They could have easily got on his back for not scoring goals. That's probably helped him, hasn't it? Like, keep his head above water with this with the lack of goals. I know he's been providing assists, but the last thing you want when you're not finding the back of the net, Sam, is, is the fans getting on your back. And they certainly haven't with him, have they? Uh, no, certainly not. And I, I do wonder if the fact that this this team is quite small now in terms of numbers, uh, and it's only Lacazette or, or Eddie Nketiah to play up front. You know, if, if Aubameyang was there, in the reserves or ostracised like someone like Meza Urza was or like Aubameyang was for a couple of weeks after, before he joined Barcelona, of course. If he was there in the background and Lacazette wasn't scoring, we'd, we'd, ask, we'd be asking the question, the fans would be asking the question and it would be a sort of subplot to, oh, he won't, he can't score, but Aubameyang's not playing and he's going to bring it back in. And all those issues, which I think would have been a distraction and probably a source of frustration for the fans as well as as well as people inside the club. So so maybe by clearing him out, they've avoided that. And, that, and that's what's helped everyone get behind Lacazette. But then, then again, also, the key thing is, as you say, is that he's playing quite well. And yes, he's not scoring goals, but he's you know assisted seven in 10 games uh, and is bringing the best out of everyone around him. So you can't really, you can't really argue against Lacazette at the moment. Molly, who stood out for you? I know you, you mentioned the Brendan Rodgers reaction to Aaron Ramsdale's save in, in your match report, but who, who stood out for you yesterday? I think there were a few players and I suppose it's it's that kind of, as someone that hasn't you know watched Arsenal too much live this season, it was like all of the players that Arteta's almost brought in were, were the ones that stood out. You've got Ramsdale. There was a fantastic um, tackle from Ben White that, uh, maybe got overlooked a little bit in the end because of everything else that happened in the game. But in the in the first half, um, when there was a period where Leicester 
actually were doing pretty well and, and putting a bit of pressure on Arsenal. I think there was a there was a fantastic tackle from him that kind of cleared and there was such a big cheer for that and for the Ramsdale save as well. It was almost like the fans sort of risked those moments now and recognised that they're as in having those two players and what they bring to the team then kind of scoring goals um, up, up the other end. Thomas um, Party had a, had a great game yesterday as well. And I think there's times we've talked before where it feels as though when he has a good game, Arsenal have a good game. And I think that was a good kind of good example of that, that as he's got better, um, you know, more pivotal to Arsenal and it's, it's shown and him playing, you know, a little bit further forwards, kind of getting getting on the ball a bit more yesterday. Um, it was quite funny that somehow he, he, he could have had a hat-trick. You know, he got the goal, he hit the post and, you know, were it not for the hand or the goal line clearance or whatever you want to call it um, in the Leicester kind of penalty area, you know, could have, could have had a pretty memorable hat-trick. So I think all of those players stood out, all the, all the ones that have kind of come in and brought into this kind of new Arsenal, I suppose, and they're the ones that are, that are leading the Champions League. And Odegaard. Did I mention Odegaard? That's exactly... I was about to just go on to Martin Odegaard, Sam's favourite player, because again, yesterday, he ran that show, didn't he, Sam? Yeah, just... I mean, people... uh, I won't name names, but somebody messaged me today saying, you were right about Odegaard. (laughs) Oh, no, I think think the phrase was, I'm coming round to Odegaard. Um, But it it is funny to think... And we've been talking about this. I was talking about this yesterday to uh, Arsenal beat regular Simon Collins. And we're saying, like, in hindsight, it is mad how many fans weren't that fussed by him in the summer. Um, and I know we're in a privileged position that we were able to watch him in the flesh last season when fans worked. And that, that's something that we're very fortunate to do and we don't take that lightly. I, I'm pretty sure all of us in the press box saw this coming. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you disagree, Mark, but you know, you guys, anyone who listens to this podcast more than a few times will know that I've been banging the drum for ages and I feel very vindicated right now because what he's doing is he's the best playmaker in the league at the moment I think if you, if you look in terms of the way he's playing and the reliance on him in terms of the team and everything flows through him obviously I'm not saying he's better than De Bruyne but I think City could handle De Bruyne being out more than Arsenal could handle Odegaard being out um, it, it's, it's the work rate the invention the, the way he sees the game unfold and the way he brings the best out of the other players is um, it's a genuine joy to watch at the moment. And there's another example yesterday. I think I've mentioned it on the pod before, but every time there's a break in play or a player goes down and there's a suspended, an extended um, sort of stoppage in the game, it's always Odegaard who comes to the touchline to talk to Arteta. And yesterday, every player on the pitch was on the halfway line in the centre circle for an injury or someone went down. And he was the only one who came out to talk to Arteta. And it's, you can almost see Arteta sort of thinking through him and, moving through him sometimes so uh, he seems totally in tune with everything and uh, he's playing just brilliantly at the moment and it's great to watch it's an interview as well Sam to be fair it'd be uh, quite a good one for you to get at some point wouldn't it for the Telegraph <laughs> <laughs> if you are yes, well, I should say there's a, a anyone listening who hasn't seen this should of course check out uh, Mark Manbrander's Twitter feed because Mark spoke to our friend Martin Odegaard on a one-to-one exclusive basis Barely, what, a week and a half ago? I mean, yeah, just at the right, just peaked at the right time. Are, are we allowed to talk about how that went or are you, are you saving that for future things? 
No, no, that's fine. Um, he's a great. He was great, to be fair. Um, he'd sat and did local media before I got there. Um, it was at the training ground, which is nice because obviously we're back doing press conferences in person now. So we um, we managed to get in and, and speak to him. I got about twenty minutes, just sat one on one with the guy, and he just it's very down to earth. And it, some of the things he said, you could argue, are cliched, but I think within that current Arsenal squad, things talking about the togetherness and things like that is important because arguably for the last decade or so, maybe maybe a bit less, that hasn't been there. It's been evident that when things go wrong, the wheels completely come off and there's blame games and there's little cleats within the dressing room. You, you kind of get the impression now, and not just from what Odegaard said to me, what other players have been saying, that they're really enjoying playing together, which again is part of, part of the reason they're doing so well, I think. Um, just another quick one on Odegaard. If, if we have Odegaard fans out there, do keep your eyes peeled for the international break where there's an Arsenal beat special about the man himself. Um, guys, someone I wanted to touch on, although unless Sam, you want to go back to Martin Odegaard. Just, I just wanted to ask, did he, when you met him, obviously in person, we've not, since he's joined, we've not been in a single mix zone, so we've not been in the same room as him at any point. Um, everything's been over Zoom and stuff. Did he strike you as a real athlete when he, when he walked into the room? Well, being a real athlete myself, um, it is quite easy to make that comparison. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's, he was there. He just finished training, but like, you know, not a bead of sweat on him, but properly, you know, he, he's a winner, isn't he? I think that's that's the most important thing. And for, for someone who's gone on the career trajectory he's had so far to only be 23 years old, it, it's scary the stories that he can tell at the moment, which can only help, the young, as he said to me, he can only help the likes of Smith, Rowan, Saka and the other young players coming through because he's been, he's lived it all probably even more so at Real Madrid where the spotlights burns even brighter, doesn't it? Um, yeah. yeah the, the other the other player I wanted to touch on who I think has got a little bit lost in in the shuffle of how well they've been playing, especially going forward, is is Granit Xhaka. Um, Sam, we'll come to you on that first. It, this new role of his seems to suit him perfectly, doesn't it? The, he's almost not reliant on as defensively as before, which gives him the freedom to be the player that I think he's always wanted to be in this Arsenal side. Yeah, um, I don't know. I'm not sure how natural or comfortable he finds this new sort of box-to-box number eight position. I think I think Xhaka's tendency has always been to be behind the ball and to be playing forward. Now he's just sort of receiving it with his back to goal a bit more and playing in, in tighter tighter angles and tighter spaces. But it, it, he's doing it really well. And it's interesting because, you know, we've spoken before about the shift of the 4-3-3 over time and how... We thought maybe Smith Rowe would be the one to do that. And then the few times that they've tried that, it hasn't really worked. Um, I don't think anyone really expected Xhaka to be the one to play that role. And yet here we are, and he's doing it really well. He seems to be sort of much more mobile than he has been in the past. I wonder if that's that's fitness or that's just having the ball in the right positions and, and sort of the team's shape and the pressing being quite compact. He's not being exposed in those wide spaces. I remember thinking back to the you know every days when they basically had two defenders sitting on the edge of their own box because they were scared to press high. Strikers who were pressing high at the other end. And in between was Xhaka in about 100 yards of space. And he was just, just swimming and players were just walking past him. Whereas now it's all more compact and more organised. He seems to be a bit more protected. Um, he's doing really well. What, what I would say, we were talking about this yesterday with, with um, in, in a press conference with Charlie Watts. It does feel a bit to me like that Xhaka's more replaceable now than he ever has been, if that makes sense. So you've got Party playing in a holding role in the, in the three and he's nailed on. That's his position. He's staying there every big game if he's fit, he's going to play. Which 
it means that Xhaka is the sort of eight, the, shuff, the shuttling left-footed number eight. It's slightly less natural. And I do think in the summer, that will be the position they try to upgrade. Whether that means Xhaka goes or not, well, obviously we'll find out. But for now, I look at the team and think the one player who's probably slightly out of position in that squad is, is him now. And that's probably the one position you'd look at and go, yeah, that's the one to upgrade in the summer. I know you watch most Arsenal games on TV when they're playing, um, but you were there yesterday. And obviously watching in the flesh is always completely different to watching on TV. Was there, was there one player you saw yesterday on the Arsenal side who surprised you in just, in just how good they were? I was going to say I spent the first about 15 minutes just watching Mikel Arteta running around his technical area like an absolute loon. Um, that, that's definitely something that you don't pick up on when you're watching on TV. Like I have done um, Arsenal games before, but I don't know if it's almost that <laughs> he's sort of seen that clearly it's working, whatever he does. Um, and I think he was even more energetic than usual. There, there was one moment where he was like really on the corner of his technical area. And one of the Arsenal players was going to tackle James Madison. And it's like he was jockeying Madison. Like <laughs> I genuinely thought at one point he was going to be on the pitch and like tackling him. Um, so that definitely stood out. I think um, just the the manner of the whole team, like when I've watched Arsenal in the past, it's quite a stressful thing, even though I'm not an Arsenal fan. I don't know how someone like Art or, or whoever, Arsenal fans cope because it is quite nervy. But actually, after they went 1-0 up, and even when there was that period of kind of Leicester's pressure, I didn't really feel like Arsenal were going to concede. And I think that's the notable change, that it feels like they have real control of games now, and it's not a coincidence that they're winning games. There's actually a play and a pattern for that. And I think, you know, as part of that, I suppose, it's not that one player stands out. It's that so many players are putting in solid performances. You know, when I was coming down to do my player ratings after the game, you know, there's not many players there really at all that you could have said, oh, they didn't have a great game. Like everyone pretty much had a solid game. And then obviously there was the, there's the players we talked about that, that kind of had even better games. But I suppose that base level is so much higher now that you're not relying on, on players to, you know, produce nine out of tens every game or one player to do that. There's so much more there for Arsenal now. And I think... As a fan, that must be really exciting because as a neutral, I watched that team and came away and went, bloody hell, Arsenal were good, you know? And I, I don't think there's too many times, even when Arsenal have won games, you might have thought that in the past. So I've, I've been covering Arsenal since, so pretty much doing every, every game, give or take, and every away trip, give or take, since Wenger left, so the start of Emery's first season. And there's pretty much always been this permanent sense of, underlying doom or this permanent sense that something might go horribly wrong at any possible moment um, and I think that was that was the case especially last season when they just made so many individual errors they'd be playing quite well and then just kick the ball off Xhaka's backside into the goal <laughs> there's this permanent sense of yeah this could all go calamitously badly but now now I think these last probably six weeks seven weeks has been the first time I've really felt that feeling has kind of disappeared which is very strange and it's like uh, having watched all those Arsenal games a couple of those Arsenal games that 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 sense is still lingering in the back of my mind I can't quite shake it um the feeling that something might go wrong at any point but 
it does feel less and less likely <laughs> than, than at any other point I can remember. I think there was a sense whenever I was drafted in to cover Arsenal, it felt like I was going to be writing about something that wasn't football. I think I did the kind of the whole Xhaka stuff, um, the Aubameyang stuff. Um, it was there when when Emery kind of got the sack. It, it almost felt like every time I covered Arsenal, there was some sort of narrative, some sort of doom, as you say, that was going on in the background. Whereas it was quite nice yesterday just to go to Arsenal and write a nice football story about how good they are and that they're fighting for the Champions League. It felt like that was the first time in a while it's been kind of quite relaxed. Never last. Who Monga Molly Hudson uh, revealed. Um, I also think you're right. I think there's a few examples earlier in the season, but they're more outliers than the current run. But Leicester away, I think they went to look really early on, a bit under the cosh second half, and never looked really like they were going to slip up there. And I know Nick Ames mentioned on here there was the Wolves win, the away game, down to ten men, but they just looked, they just managed that game so well that they never really looked under threat and. That's something in the past you could never say Arsenal's game management was any good, even under Wenger, to be fair, because Arsene was always sticking to his principles, rightly or wrongly. So there was always that danger, that doom, as you say, hanging over them. Um, potentially, there might be more doom hanging over them on Wednesday night. Um, Arsenal haven't lost in the league since that heartbreaking last-minute Rodri goal saw Man City win 2-1 at the Emirates on New Year's Day. Uh, they've won five and drawn one since then. But the biggest threat to that current run comes in the shape of Liverpool on Wednesday night. Um, the Reds have won their last eight league games, conceding just twice in that time. Sam, how much hope do you give Arsenal here? Uh, not much. I think they'll lose. I think they always lose Liverpool, <laughs> basically. Um, and I think Liverpool are just simply a much better team than Arsenal. But the key thing is that that would not change everything we've said so far in this podcast and everything that's been written in the last few weeks. Losing to Liverpool does not define their season, does not define their current form and their current trajectory. Yes, it would affect their run of results and their, you know, their five in a row, but it doesn't change anything to do with the structure and, and the progress they're making. Um, and that, you know, they, they might give Liverpool a real scale Wednesday night. I think we saw in, in, the, in the second leg of the, of the, of the cup semi-final, the first sort of 20 minutes until Jota scored that opening goal, it was a very even game and it looked like Arsenal actually sort of had the better of them in some some areas. I remember Martinelli looking very dangerous against uh, the right side of Liverpool's defence. I think Alexander Arnold was playing. Yes, he was. Um, and it, it looked like quite an even game and then suddenly that goal went in and you, you knew that Arsenal were in trouble because of the way Liverpool play. Um, but yeah, I mean, we all know that Liverpool are better than Arsenal. But I think right now, Arsenal are closing that gap to an extent. So this will be a good indication of where they are and how far they've come. That age-old age argument of would you rather have points on the board or games in hand, but Arsenal have managed to put themselves, deservedly put themselves into a privileged position where they've got both. They've got the points and they've got the games in hand. Uh, looking at that, Molly, given they've got these games in hand on their main top four rivals. Would would anything from this game, a draw, has to be seen as success? Uh, I'll say that again. Has to be seen as a success, doesn't it? Even if they take a point off Liverpool. Yeah, I think so. And the fact that they have got those points on the board, I think, makes me think there's more chance of them getting something out of it. Because I think if you go to, you know, if you if you play a side like Liverpool and it's one of your games in hand and you're chasing the points 
you've got you you're kind of opening yourself up to everything that Liverpool are, are great at, and actually the fact that Arsenal will maybe go into it with you know with more confidence. I think before the game is kind of looking at some stats, and I think they'd accrued twenty five points in their last sort of ten games before before yesterday, and the only team that had I think it was equaled that was Man City. So actually, they they are in better form than Liverpool, and you know Liverpool are having a, a great season again. So that you know that's no no mean feat. And I think just the mentality around the club at the moment. I I understand kind of Sam's natural pessimism, but it does feel as though if they're ever going to get something out of a game against Liverpool, then this could be the one. It's a question as well, isn't it? Of you don't want to lose three four nil. Wednesday night because then it can threaten a, a lot of the momentum that we've that we've just been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, that I saw uh, obviously Salah went off injured against against Brighton on Saturday, which is potentially significant news for Arsenal. And I was thinking, oh, Salah always does well against Arsenal; he's got a great, great record against them. Then I realised that that's also true of Sadio Mane, who always does well against Arsenal; has a great record against them. Jota. And it's also true. Of, and it's also true <laughs> of Diego Jota who's got a great record against Arsenal and was as well against them. And it's also true for Berto Firmino, who's got, who's, got, who's got a great record against Arsenal. Um, and I imagine that as of Thursday morning, Luis Diaz might well have a great record against Arsenal as well. Um, so, yeah, I think the people who got a bit encouraged by the, the, the sight of Sa- uh, Salah limping off might, might, might soon be uh, forgetting that one. But uh, what was your question, Mark? I was too busy chortling. You've now made, just made me worried about my fantasy Premier League because Salah is my captain. But um, I was just saying they need to be careful because a three or four nil defeat could actually damage the momentum they've been building up, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, that, that would be, you know, problematic. But then I think the Villa game is bigger anyway in that in that sense. So it would be how they respond to that against Villa. I mean, I all, you wouldn't ever expect anyone at Arsenal to say this, certainly with the way they're playing. But you can always write off Liverpool and say it's a free hit. If we get a point or more, then wonderful. And if not, then as as we were, you know, crack on. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Obviously, a thrashing is demoralising in any in any context. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't imagine this could derail Arsenal's season unless half the players get injured, and that really would derail them because they can't afford that at all. Yeah, I'd, I'd be very surprised as well with the way they're playing at the moment if they got properly turned over. I, I think they'll lose, but quite narrowly, if in my humble opinion. I know you and I will be there, Sam. Molly, I'm not sure where you stationed on Wednesday night or whether you'll be in front of the TV. I think I'm at Brighton. Is that Wednesday night? Brighton. 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 Who they Brighton. got? No, oh, Brighton. Not. Yeah, yeah, Brighton Tottenham. See, that's the one, isn't it? If you've got, if Arsenal nick a point um, to Liverpool and Spurs go and lose at Brighton, then, uh, you know, who knows? That is the thing as well, isn't it? Arsenal could get this top four almost, not by default, because that's not fair on on the run they've been on, but they could get it by winning probably four of their last few games, given given how badly everyone else is doing up there at the moment, and that, that a lot of them have still got to play each other. So it could be that they, they've almost done enough, as it were, already to, uh, to get enough points on the board. Um, talking of points on the board, time now for return of an old favourite as we dust off the Arsenal annuals to bring you the latest instalment of the Arsenal Beat Quiz. It's been 19 episodes since Harvey Downs took the test and this time around Molly is in the hot seat. 
I'll run through the rules shortly, but given how long it is since our last quiz, I think we need to check in on that leaderboard just to add a bit more pressure to Molly. Uh, Nick Ames, bless him, still popping up the leaderboard with six, <laughs> with, with, with six out of ten. Harvey's next with six and a half. And then Nick Callow, Sam and I all scored a respectable seven out of ten. Simon Collings, John Cross, Art de Roche, Susan, Susie Rack and Kai Kanak, all Arsenal fans, uh, all had eight with Charles Watts sitting pretty at the top of the table with a whopping nine out of ten. Oh, who asked the questions of Charlie Watts? <laughs> yeah. Deary me. Deary when, one, me. when one of the answers was Charles Watts, I think he was always going to do quite well. Um, the rule... <laughs> I hope that's what I've got, yeah? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Who's the are... best-looking journalist in the press box? Charles oh, Watts. <laughs> I was going to say, controversial question there. Maybe we'll come back to that next next week. That's Don't good... ask that. <laughs> that's a good special. Um, the, the rules are simple. Molly will be asked five general knowledge Arsenal questions and then five of a specialist subject of her choosing. And she has gone for former Arsenal manager Joe Montemuro. Are you ready, Molly? No, I was like, I'm just going to get some excuses in early. Firstly, not an Arsenal fan. Secondly, was born about five minutes ago. So anything <laughs> before 98, I'm just not going to know. Anything for old crumbs. Um, Right, well, let's see how you get on with your general knowledge round based on Arsenal of the 1980s. No, I'm joking. Question number one. In the WSL Spring Series, Arsenal were involved in the high-scoring game, drawing four all against which current women's championship side? Liverpool. Correct. One for one. Do you want to stop there? Yeah, I'll retire now. <laughs> Question number two. Who captained Arsenal to their 2007 UEFA Women's Cup title? Oh, no, don't do that to me. Um, that's a very good question. Um, all I can think about is Alex Scott scoring the goal in the final because we've been talking about it loads. Um Quite lucky because that nearly was the question. Oh, for... Thanks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that helps. Um, I don't know, and I can't think of an educated. Well, I can think of an educated guess. I'm thinking either Faye White or Kelly Smith, but I don't even know if I'm in the the... Jane hmm? Ludlow. Oh, okay. <laughs> Question number three. Which club have both Granite Xhaka and Mohamed El Nene previously played for? I'm assuming it's Swiss. So, Basel? Correct. Nice, nice. Question number four. Who am I? I signed for Arsenal in January 2015, but left later that year. I scored the last goal in the 3-0 Continental Cup final win over Notts County. I have since played for the Houston Dash, Orlando Pride and Real Madrid. I was part of the England squad that won the She Believes Cup in 2019, and I currently play for Tottenham. Chioma Ubergagi. I mean, that is scarily quick. Love that work. 
Well, I mean, I'm really glad you carried on speaking because I started drinking my men's players from 2015 and I was like, I've got <laughs> Right, here we go. Question number five, to make it four out of five in this round. Ubergargu scored the last of those three goals in the 2015 League Cup win, but which current player had already hit a brace in the same game? Tim Little? Jordan Nobbs. Oh, I was torn between those two. <laughs> so that's a respectable three out of five from your general knowledge round. That means if you get all of these on Joe Montemuro, you will leapfrog both Sam and myself onto eight points. So now it's time for your specialist round on Joe Montemuro. Question number one. Montemuro left Arsenal to take over at Juventus, but who did he manage before moving to North London? Is it one of the Melbourne teams? It might be. Oh, for God's sake, there's two of them: Melbourne Victory and the, and well, the other, the and the other, and the other one. Is it the other one? Melbourne. Oh, what are they called? Who I want to say City. Yeah. Not... What was that? No, City. Correct. Part of the city group. Well, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Objection. Yes, Samuel. That was a very tentative answer. Oh, she almost <laughs> said, I'm not going to say that before you cut her off to say she was right. So uh, just uh, just flag her up in case she does a uh, get towards the top, top of the screen. <laughs> <Yes>. Precisely. <laughs> Question number two. Between November 2017 and May 2021, Montemiro took charge of 76 Arsenal games, winning how many? 48, 58 or 68? Is that all comps? Yes. Sixty-eight. Fifty-eight, I'm afraid. So that leaves us one and done for this round so far. Question number three. Montemuro has highlighted one specific FA Cup final as his inspiration for getting into football and supporting Arsenal. Which one was it? I have no idea. Well, I do have an idea, but I can't remember the game. It was a cup final. Yeah. I remember the year because he was 10. I only need the year. I only need the year. That was the question. Okay. So he he was born in 69. So 1979. Correct. Arsenal 2, Manchester United 3. United. There we go. Which current Arsenal player was on the opposing side when Montemuro won his first silverware at Arsenal? with victory in the 2018 Continental Cup final? And there are two answers, but I will accept either. Um, I'm going to go with Jen Beattie, but I can't think of who the other one is. <laughs> it really annoys me. Uh, that is correct. The other one is Nikita Paris. 
And finally, question number five, you're currently on six out of 10. So if you can get this right, you would draw level with the, the doyens that are Sam Dean and Markman Bryans. Um, goals flowed freely for Arsenal under Joe Montemiro, but what was the total goal difference across his 76 games in charge? I can tell you the total number of goals conceded was 55. And I will award three points if you get the answer spot on and one point if you are three either side. So 76 games, 55 conceded. So what would be their total goal difference once you add how many goals you think they scored? This is so much maths. Why are you doing this to me? Um... <laughs> Sam's nodding his head like he's got the answer. Sam, what, just out of curiosity, Sam, what would you go for here? So he conceded 55 goals. Yeah. I think he Arsenal would have scored... At least. They scored a lot. I reckon they would score at least 180, 190. So I would say goal difference, I'm guessing around 142 positive. Not a bad guess. You won't get you any points, but it's not a bad guess. <laughs> um, I'm going to go... One sixty. I nearly jumped out of my seat there because you were so close. The answer is plus one hundred and sixty-eight. Oh, Arsenal scored two hundred twenty-three goals, an average of over two point nine goals per game under Joe Montemuro. Uh, but I do think that is a great effort. So, shall we give a half point there? Sam? How many? What was she on in total? Well, if we give a half point, it means Nick's still rock bottom. Yeah, do it. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Given how close you were there, Molly, we'll give you half point, which means your total is six and a half out of ten, which leaves the Guardian's Nick Ames rock bottom. He is the Norwich of the Arsenal Beat quiz, which will piss him off even more, given that he's an Ipswich fan. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll let him have a go at another time. Uh, thanks, guys, for joining me today. We'll be back later in the week to look back on whatever happens against Liverpool and preview what promises to be quite a tasty tie against Aston Villa. Bye.